In an instance like this, there's a suspicion based on an audit that has reflected the potential of fraud. The interview helps to vet out that information. Hello, and welcome to the Gross Profit Podcast. I am your host, James Kennedy, CEO at ProcurementExpress.com, where we help hundreds of companies to safely spend billions of dollars each year. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Chris Norris, Director at WZ International. Chris has more than 30 years of experience in the loss prevention and investigative fields, having conducted numerous investigations for both private companies and public agencies. He has also trained thousands of law enforcement and private individuals on the concept of non-confrontational interviews. Chris, you are very, very welcome indeed to the podcast. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing great, James. I appreciate you having me. Uh, great to be here. Great. So I hope I got the gist of what you do. This this non-confrontational interview thing sounds interesting. Maybe you could just give me the pro version of, of where you've come from and what you've done over the last few years. Yeah, sure. So my background is one that I uh, started uh, my career. I wanted to go into law enforcement, but ended up staying in the private sector and uh, started a career in loss prevention, uh, working retail in the States and uh, doing internal investigations on theft and fraud in retail environment and ended up uh, moving uh, from various locations within the States and then eventually up to Chicago, where I started with a, a logistics company. I actually had a logistics company um, hire me to start a loss prevention program and department for the organization because of some issues that they had had in the past. And what we did is we provided home delivery for retailers delivering furniture and appliances into people's homes. And so some of the fraud and theft that they were dealing with, they decided they needed someone internal to address some of the, I guess, uh, challenges that they were facing and, and elements of fraud that came in. Ended up growing the department, became a corporate director of investigations there for this company, the worldwide company doing investigations throughout Canada, through the States, into Central America, and even over into the Western Europe. It was early in my career that I started, I got introduced to Wicklander Zalowski and the, the WZ method of non-confrontational and used it throughout my career. And I ended up uh, connecting with WZ and now I'm uh, director of uh, our international training division, been with them for, for 20 years. Uh, so my career is one of white collar crime, organized crime, cargo theft, a variety of different uh, uh, things that take place, you know, in a corporate environment and uh, certainly the challenges that uh, any CFO is going to face from, uh, you know, a fraud perspective and anywhere in between. And at Wicklander's Zalowski Associates, we're a private investigative firm located in the Chicagoland area. I happen to live in sunny Arizona, um, um, but we do investigations as well as training. And everyone at our firm has an investigative background. We're still actively involved in investigations. Uh, we get uh, hired and outsourced to come in and conduct investigations in the workplace for fraud and, and you know, other integrity issues that you might deal with. That's a quick overview of my background. I've been doing it for years. I love what I do. I love now that I get to get out and train people on the fine art of uh, interviewing and how to get the truth out of people when they're reluctant to provide the truth. Yeah. That's uh, very interesting. So you started off, in, I mean, that sounds like a, like a pretty large logistics organization. But uh, would you say now, I guess we all think that is it something just the domain of larger organizations where you have to actually set up a internal investigations department or what size would you say it's worth having that sort of position in terms of organization size? I, I would say any organization should have some element, whether it's outsourced or you have it internal that's looking into 
claims or any allegations, even if, whether it's human resource, but more importantly, the financial side of the business. We were a large organization. The retailers that I worked for were large organizations, but I know that I work for provide training for smaller organizations that have less than 50 people, around 100 people. They want someone uh, in-house that is looking after risk management. And within that would also, under the risk umbrella, would handle elements of potential fraud because we get challenges coming from outside, whether it's vendors and how we outsource business to third parties, as well as internal investigations and having to look, unfortunately, into the employees that we hire to work for us. And what would you say is the, is there a general split between the threat from outside versus inside? Is it 50-50 or how would you characterize it? I don't know that I'd characterize it 50-50. There's a lot of research out there. There's um, an organization here in the States, the National Retail Federation, NRF does, and uh, Dr. Richard Hollinger down at the University of Florida. They do annual studies on a theft in the workplace. And they're, the way they categorize that, I haven't seen the most recent, but I know generally speaking, it tends to be the impact on your business is greater from the in, internal side and the employee than it is from the external because they have access to you every time they're on shift rather than the external that may not. And I know that, um, uh, what is it called? There's a British retail consortium, the BRC, and there's another association in the UK that does a similar study that identifies and adds some clarity into where the vulnerabilities come from and more importantly, where the losses come from, from an external or internal perspective. But most of the research is going to indicate the greatest vulnerability and the greatest impact on loss to your organization is internal. So I guess that's what we think of when we think of embezzlement. Embezzlement is is internal fraud, right? Generally speaking, and fraud is someone outside in the organization. That'd be correct, yeah. So, so when we think of embezzlement and the classic shift worker with an extra till, extra till in their pocket, making change for people, that's the sort of thing you, you think of. What's the most unexpected threat, though, or what do you, would you say is the most? We would think of that as a cliche, if you like. But where else have you seen, where else do you need to pay attention to that you might not necessarily think of straight off the bat? So I've seen it across the board from anywhere from, uh, you know, executives, high level uh, fraud, board members, on down to, you know, the the clerk with the tail, you know, sort of thing. But I had a, an investigation not too long ago that involved a board member, senior vice president of sales that was a 33-year employee with the organization. And it had turned out that he had been embezzling for many years and they were unaware of this. Hmm. So I think when I look at it, and I might look at things a little bit different than, than a CFO might, uh, because I'm looking at vulnerabilities and I might look at it and say, who has the greatest opportunity to take advantage of things that are happening uh, or take advantage of our organization? And someone who's highly trusted, highly respected, has access to everything that has a certain autonomy within the workplace can create a great deal of loss if they wanted to, if they chose to, and a far greater, more significant loss than that clerk who takes a, a bit from the till, uh, you know, on the way home at the end of their shift. So in that case of the um, the executive with 33 years experience, what was the tip off or what, what made this, the leadership think you should get involved? So it was an interesting case. What it ended up happening was doing a, a quarterly reconciliation for taxes. 
And um, one of the accountants during reconciliation just noticed something unusual about uh, his travel expense vouchers and his reimbursement on vouchers. And what she had noticed was uh, he was reimbursed on airfare. And it was a high, high value international business class ticket. He was reimbursed, but there weren't any accompanying expenses. There was no um, hotel travel or, you know, uh, transportation, meals, entertainment, et cetera. And she went to the controller and asked the question, why, why would we be paying him for an airfare on a trip that it doesn't look like he even took? So she raised the question just as a, this is, this is odd. Now, I think kind of a standard approach might be, especially for someone who's trusted like that, just to simply go in and say, hey, John, can you tell, tell us what this is about? What happened on this? Well, they approach it very differently and approach it much more of the way that I would, which is, it is odd. Let's see if that's an anomaly or let's see if there's something else that would explain this. And they did their own due diligence and their own uh, digging before uh, talking to him. In fact, they had me talk to him. Their audit, what they did is they audited his uh, expense vouchers for a year and a half. And the results of the audit reflected two other instances. Now, they had the one instance of airfare with nothing. They had two instances of airfare dates, travel dates were, were one set. And then the hotel and other company expenses were a different set of dates in a similar time frame, but they were off by a couple of days. Rather than, again, going to him, which I think is a common reaction, let's go find out what this is about and go talk to, to mm-hmm. him, to you know the, the subject of this investigation. They had contacted me and told me of their concerns, and their concern was there could be fraud here. And they had me go out and sit down and, uh, of course, have a conversation with him about their findings and the audit. And I think that one of the things that, that happens within an audit that I think from coming from a the kind of the perspective that and background that I have is when we find areas of concern within an audit, and in this case, you have an accountant doing reconciliation that finds something on, we would look at it as uh, the source of that issue that they've stumbled into. We would look at it and say it could be one of three things. And the three things that we would evaluate would, would be, could it be an operational flaw to how we're processing payments, how we're processing expenses in this case, et cetera. It could be a retraining issue. They didn't know any better of how they were supposed to report something, et cetera. Or there's elements of fraud. And if we look at it from that perspective and we we understand that there could be three sources of this anomaly, this issue that we've stumbled into in an audit, and we have our eyes open to the fact that there could be fraud, then we approach exploring that issue a little bit differently because if we only look at it well maybe he doesn't know what to do let's go talk to him well maybe he made a, a mistake let's go talk to him and we exclude the factor of there could be fraud here then we've taken away the opportunity to find out perhaps what the real truth is and in this particular case they contacted me we dug deeper and uh, you know revealed that there could be potential to fraud the finding of the audit didn't reveal true fraud the conversation, the interview that I had with them is what re- revealed the fraud. But it can happen with anyone at any time. And there's a lot of reasons why people might get involved in doing the things that they do. So it sounds to me like this is an you know, ideal situation. You have a company like WC, at least on the books, or you have a relationship there and you have a process ready when something comes up like this to make sure that you, you, know, you follow this. You say, okay, well, it's probably something else, but let's not discard the fact it could be fraud. 
let's just follow that process. And it sounds like the first thing will be to do your due diligence first before you do anything and then perhaps work with someone like yourselves. Yeah, that, that would be correct. I mean, that would be in my views of if you're a company or an organization that doesn't have someone internally that looks into things like this to outsource. But the beautiful thing about what we do at WZ is we train people. We will train CFOs and, you know, uh, doing presentations for ACFE around the world on how to conduct an interview, how to sit down and interview someone to ha- help you come to the conclusion, was it a training error? Is there an operational flaw or is there a fraud? And they didn't have anyone internally. They knew they had, I had done work with them in the past on a previous investigation. So they had contacted me and said, we had something else pop up. We would really appreciate your help and in, in talking to him. In fact, what they said to me was, we would prefer that you talk to him. We'd be afraid that if we talk to him, we would screw this up. Mm. And we are concerned that there's fraud. So would you be available to sit down with our senior vice president of sales? For sure. And I mean, of course, if they were wrong, it could damage the relationship going forward. You know, it would be very awkward. And even if they're right, <laughs> it's going to damage the relationship anyway, I guess. So in this case, so maybe you can talk a little bit. I mean, what is this non-confrontational approach? I mean, he was called in. Did he know what the, the meeting was going to be about? What was the context? So the context is, I think, let's, if we take a step back and think about how most people might approach this, people that didn't have an investigative sort of background, we might approach this and say, okay, this is odd. We found that he has airfare here and we, these dates don't match up. Something's wrong. A typical approach would be to walk in and put your audit on the table and say, all right, James, can you explain this to me? Can you explain the, this airfare here? And by the way, can you explain why these hotel dates don't match up? And we essentially walk in and confront you with the evidence or the results of the audit and present evidence or what we believe to be evidence or proof that, that something's not right in this instance. And then you get the opportunity to explain that away. And so from a, let's say, an, an untrained investigative professional, that would be a very standard approach. Can you explain this to me? Now, the way that I end up speaking to him and the way that we have, uh, we follow non-confrontational protocols, the arrangement for the meeting was set up with the CFO. I was working with the CFO and they expressed their concerns with me. And we arranged a meeting where they brought me in as a consultant. And we had set the meeting up with the CFO. By the way, we've hired a consultant, uh, senior VP of sales. Let's meet with the CFO and this consultant. We're getting ideas of how we can be more profitable as an organization. And he's going to help us with that. And so it was just set up as a meeting with the three of us. When my subject came in, when the the, uh, VP of sales came in for the conversation, I introduced myself very transparent, you know, about who I am and what it is I do. But the process isn't confronting with evidence or confronting with facts as we see them and saying something's amiss here because uh, can you explain these uh, you know, expense reports? We have a conversation very differently. And what we recognize in that moment is asking better questions is important, being able to evaluate behavior and understand where there's elements of concern coming from the person that you're talking to. But we don't come right out and immediately say, can you explain this? We we have a conversation that takes us down that path. And ultimately, non-confrontation is, in a way, in a simplified form, it's how we reason with our kids to get our kids to tell us that, uh, you know, whatever, they didn't take out the garbage, that they, uh, they didn't do their homework, that they were 
uh, at the shopping center when they weren't supposed to be, you know, whatever it happens to be. But we reason with our kids from time to time, and it's the same sort of element here. Well, that's a whole other podcast, which I actually would really be interested in because I can't reason with my kids at all. Okay, so you were transparent, but obviously when you say, hi, I'm Chris Norris from WZ International, we're investigators, he must have at that point known, okay, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Are you trying to read his body language or is anything like that? Or is it, how did he react to that? Because the fact that he knows who you are, are you looking for some sort of signs there? Or is that all irrelevant in TV science? No, I, I'm certainly looking for signs and looking for his reactions. And, and when I introduce myself that, hey, you know, how are you? My name's Chris. And, and uh, I'm going to explain to you a little bit about uh, my role and why your company has hired me out here. And I start to tell him about the fact that I work for an investigative company and, you know, that sort of thing. And during the entire process, I'm evaluating his reactions to the things that I'm saying. And if you think of it like this, if I'm sitting in front of someone who it fits into the category of training or operational, as I explained to you that I work for an investigative company and, you know, we look into a variety of different things ranging from, you know, A to Z. Oh, by the way, it also includes, um, uh, you know, uh, travel expense vouchers. I'm evaluating your reaction. Now, if this fits into those first two categories of a retraining or an operational flaw, you don't necessarily have any concern about our conversation that we're, we're about to have because you're like, okay, cool. You know, uh, yeah, if that's one of the areas we can make the company be more profitable, that's awesome. Let's talk about it. You know, there's essentially, by theory, there's very limited concern coming from you in that moment. Now, if you fit into the third category and you are perpetrating a fraud and I'm sitting in front of you and I'm talking to you about my role with the organization, to help it be more profitable is to look at its vulnerabilities and look at uh, where losses occur. And one of those ways is someone manipulating their travel vouchers. There's now a certain element of concern that, that overtakes you. And so I'm evaluating your reactions to the things that I'm saying. And then, of course, we lead into the interview and the types of questions that I'm going to be asking. I'm also evaluating your responses to the questions, that sort of thing. So it's one thing if I have absolute evidence without a doubt that someone's done something wrong. In an instance like this, there's a suspicion based on an audit that has reflected the potential of fraud. The interview helps to vet out that information, and that's how we would approach it. And that's what it is about, is understanding how to enter into the dialogue, um, maintaining rapport through an entire conversation, and being able to evaluate people's reactions and responses to the things that you're saying to help you understand which of the three categories that they might fall in. And if it falls into the fraud category, then I'll progress the conversation to uh, get the truth from him and get him to acknowledge his involvement. Okay, so he's he's uh, he he might be aware something's up. I guess his his optimistic side might be thinking, well, it's probably the training. Hopefully, it's not my travel voucher investment. Maybe he's there's the option that it's your this is nothing to do with it. So he's still playing that game. I suppose that helps him not clam up, if you like. Uh, so so do you? Do a broad ranging discussion then, or is your aim to talk to him for enough so eventually it comes up, or are you driving towards a particular you know outcome or set of questions you want to get to? Uh, it's a little bit of both. There's there's a couple different interview tactics that we we teach and approaches that we teach. Some of them are, are very much interview based dialogue. I ask you respond, and I'm gonna you know based on your responses continue down a certain path with you. 
Other times we, we actually talked about having essentially an accusatory interview, but in a non-confrontational way. I'm not presenting you by dropping the audit in front of you and saying, right, can you explain this? Um, I take you down a path non-confrontationally by talking about my job, by talking about uh, how good people sometimes make bad decisions and putting you in a position where there's a certain willingness for you to want to tell me the truth. Now, in his case, because we didn't know, there was an interview process that we go through. And it's a rather strategic approach, one where we come in and we speak much more ambiguously about his role with the organization. Um, we talk in non-threatening subject matter about a variety of different things about his job. And as we continue to talk about his role within the organization, about certain aspects of his job and responsibilities that he has, eventually that conversation will lead to his business travel and his um, uh, reimbursement on travel expenses. And it's at that point when we go from non-threatening topics to the core topic and the subject of what the purpose of the entire conversation is, that again, I'm determining through his answers, his behavior, and through our dialogue, whether he is fitting into that third category. Because if he's saying things that contradict what the audit has revealed, we have to ask ourselves, why is he hiding something or why is he saying something that we know for a fact is not true? Right. And when I can make an assessment like that, that can help further our, the investigation or it could help strengthen the suspicion of fraud and take it from being a suspicion to being a, a, a true uh, real concern of the fact that there is fraud here. So might you say, oh, we're looking into what happens when, you know, a business class flight doesn't go ahead and needs to get refunded. We suddenly realized if that happened, we could be open because we would reimburse the employee and that employee would get the money back because they've done it privately. And then ask them, have you ever, do you see that could be a vulnerability? Do you go in like that and see how it reacts? And you're basically kind of setting them up to contradict the proof or is that not your aim? We're setting him up, I don't know if set up is the right word, but we, we're taking him to this point where he has an opportunity to explain. So let me give an example. Because, because we have the first instance is airfare with no additional expenses, right? Part of what I'll, I'll do with him is, again, I start ambiguous, I start rather broad, and eventually I start to talk about his business trip and his business travel. And within that, uh, you know, so who books your flights? Oh, I do. And and so how are those paid for? Oh, they're paid on a personal credit card. I submit expense, they reimburse me. Yeah, okay, so, and how often do you travel? Oh, you know, two or three times a week. And it's a conversation that we're going through. Now, what ends up happening is if I, if I ask a question in this instance that might be along the lines of, so how often do you have to reschedule trips? And he says, well, it happens pretty frequently. As a matter of fact, I had one that happened a month or so ago where the client called me up and said, we need to, uh, I had something come up on a personal side. Let's rebook your trip for next quarter. Then I can go, oh, so what do you do in an instance like that? Well, I just call the airline and I rebook my flight. And then I take, and so you said that happened on a trip. What trip was that, by the way? Oh, it was a trip to uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil. I have a receipt for Sao Paulo, Brazil. He just gave me a reasonable explanation to why they found a receipt for airfare that had no accompanying expenses because he's rebooked the trip to a later date. Right. So I'm not necessarily getting him to say something that contradicts the truth. I'm giving him a, 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 an opportunity to tell the truth. And we're not taking advantage of that opportunity. 
that leads to speculation. So if I say to him, have you, you know, how often do you have a trip rescheduled? Oh, it's super rare. So when would the last time be? Oh, hell, probably not even in the last year. Right. So that would say that that airfare is not there because of a rescheduled trip. I can scratch that off of the list. Right. How about this? How about that? And I'll ask in a variety, again, surrounding the topic, I'm not going to ask him about the specific airfare, but the certain things that would accompany the purchase of the airfare and why he would get reimbursed for that. And that helps me come to a conclusion of, I've eliminated explanations or excuses. So it's no longer a training issue. It's no longer an operational flaw. There are elements of fraud lying here. And with me in that conversation, that's very similar to how that conversation progressed, is then I can come to a conclusion, okay, I'm quite confident we're dealing with uh, certain elements of fraud at this moment. Then at that point, you have a decision. Do we say, hey, I appreciate you talking to you, and we step away and we further the investigation to try and gather more evidence, or do we continue that conversation down the path where now we're going to start to talk about that specific airfare and get him to acknowledge, yeah, yeah, here's what I did, which is what I did. I had a single conversation that started with a, tell me about your job, gave him opportunities to explain certain aspects of the job that were discovered in an audit. He didn't, which led me to believe he's hiding something. Let's find out what he's hiding. And in a very short period of time, quite frankly, he said, yes, I've been embezzling from the company. In fact, at the end of the conversation, this might surprise you, after he had acknowledged that he'd been embezzling for 10 years and that he had embezzled close to a half a million dollars in that 10-year period, he shook my hand and thanked me for how I handled the conversation because it was non-confrontational. I wasn't judging him. I didn't present him with facts and uh, confront him with anything. We had a conversation as two adults that led to the path of him actually saying, I'm sorry, here's what I did, and I appreciate how you handled it today, which also helps you as an organization to mitigate further loss. Sure. Because as you know, if we confront with evidence, hey, this, that, not only does it damage your relationship with that individual, but it also could you know, create further liabilities and further loss to any organization if it's handled inappropriately. For sure. And of course, you know, if it gone the other way, confrontationally, you open yourself up to claims of wrongful dismissal and um, all sorts of other trouble. And you, I can certainly see, especially with a senior VP of sales, who are basically people designed to handle tricky conversations. Yeah. They, uh, you really need to, be, it's, you need to be quite deft at how you handle that. Uh, you need a lot of experience. Yeah. That's fascinating. Before we go, I can't go without without asking you. Uh, previously on the podcast, I uh, had a, a good friend of mine, actually, Robert Hartline, come on and talk very openly about the embezzlement he experienced at his uh, retail operation. Yeah. $300,000 in, in, in payroll fraud. Uh, and people can go back and refer that back to it's the previous episode to this. Uh, you've had a chance to listen to that, and I'd be curious to to because Robert, I I know of him actually personally, and he's he's quite a all guns blazing type of guy. Probably could have done with listening to this before that happened. But what struck you about that story, and, and what could we learn from it? Well, I think uh, there, there's a couple things that we can certainly learn from it, and one of the things that, that Robert says in the, the podcast uh, towards the end is he said, "I assumed." That everything was okay, that that it was, you know, innocent, you know, sort of thing. And that goes back to what I had mentioned earlier, that I think most of us, particularly business owners, 
CFOs and we're connected to, to companies in you know certain ways that we want to trust the people that we work that work for us. We want to see the good, which we should absolutely. But when making that statement he, right there, I assumed everything was okay, and he made that phone call and said, "Could you explain this to me?" Just like if the company that I was referring to went to their CFO or I'm sorry to their uh, VP of Sales and said, "Could you explain this to me?" Suddenly, we're thinking the best. Well, okay, you know, it's going to go away. And it is, you know, opening our eyes to the potential of fraud. And rather than, again, thinking about it can't be fraud, the best people can get involved. I mean, there's, there's, um, we spoke briefly on a previous call about, you know, the fraud triangle and understanding how a fraud triangle works. And it might even put your best employee in an awkward position. And that fraud triangle of understanding how the opportunity is there. He, uh, you know, in his case, the opportunity was there. There might be pressure as a second part of a fraud triangle, family pressures, outside pressures, world pressure, financial pressures, the pressures that we all face. And then the employee then rationalizes why they did it. And so when we look at a fraud triangle and understanding what would put someone in a position to maybe do that from his case, initially saying, can you explain this to me? I think we all do. It's going from there and doing some due diligence and, and saying, wait a second. He even said in his podcast, I know everyone on the payroll uh, that makes $100,000 or, or, or more, and I don't know this guy. That raising that red flag, I've never seen that name before. I don't know that person. I know everyone that makes that sort of uh, that amount in, in payroll for my organization. Do some due diligence. Do it with someone that you trust. I'm sure he trusted the company that was outsourced to, but it's recognizing the best employee. I've had employees of the year sit in front of me and acknowledge their involvement into theft, fraud, and embezzlement. The best employee could start making bad decisions because the unfortunate thing is while they're wonderful employees, we don't always know what's happening at home and pressures they get at home, which is why understanding that broad triangle becomes important and how people rationalize the decisions. And I think that's important from an interview perspective is when I know that they themselves have rationalized why they want to embezzle $300,000 from Robert, when I sit down to interview, I will rationalize and help explain to them, I get why good people do dumb things. Hmm. That's interesting. A question just occurred to me there while you were talking about that was, uh, at what stage, if you do, I mean, ideally, you have a process in place, maybe you have someone who's done some training, you know, you've prepared for this, and you have a policy document. At what stage could you should you consider going to law enforcement versus a private organization? Is there an order or does it matter? Or what's the advantages or disadvantages of both? Well, there are advantages and disadvantages to both. One of the first things that we do, for, and, and, and I will say from an internal perspective, when I was you know, a corporate director of investigations, when I ran a loss prevention department for an organization sort of thing, first and foremost, we saw it as an employment issue. As, as an internal matter, even though they might be committing a crime, initially we want to address it as, uh, as a, an employment issue and we'll address it as such. The, even globally, I, I lived over in, on the edge of London for a while and I've done business throughout Ireland and even, uh, you know, training throughout Europe and into the Gulf and whatever else. The rules of engagement become very different when, when we put things and we escalate them to become a criminal matter. So first and foremost, we look at it from a, a, an internal and employment matter. Let's address this as, as an internal issue first. Once we've uh, gone through what we believe is the right thing to do as an organization internally with this employee and their continued employment, 
and handled it appropriately and professionally, ethically, legally, et cetera, then there might be a consideration to escalate to a criminal proceeding, depending on the size of the case, um, the amount of evidence. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that might influence that. But one of the things that happens is if, and we could just simply use Robert's example right away, let's say he has a concern, but the first thing he does is contacts the local police. That now it's become a police investigation. And certainly the, the states are very different than the UK, which is different than Ireland, which is different than, you know, once we've involved the police, it becomes a criminal matter or police matter if they choose to investigate it. And they certainly here in the States, they then have different rights and the rules of engagement. They don't have to cooperate with a police investigation. They certainly don't have to cooperate with me, with me on an employment investigation, but I, I have the rights as an employer to sit down and discuss with them certain things that have happened during their work as opposed to police. The other thing, too, about getting police involved, you know, your company name shows up in the newspaper, shows up on a, uh, you know, a blog somewhere or something like this. And there's, there's no good answer to it. Every case is different, I think. Many companies out there have a set rule. We have a zero tolerance, so we're always going to get the police involved but it tends to be handled as an internal employment matter first before it becomes referred or escalated over to uh, a criminal. Very good. Well, thanks, Chris. I have to say this is a fascinating conversation, and uh, I think you've delivered some really clear insights there as to what our audience can do and going forward. Before we tell people how they can get in touch with you, what sort of training can you offer to our audience, which is largely CFOs, COOs in uh, mid-sized organizations? What sort of services or who might be a relevant customer for what you can do? So again, we provide training on you know the art of interviewing, which would go to human resources if they're tasked to uh, handle some of these issues for mid-sized or smaller organizations to CFOs. And we provide uh, what we, a couple different sorts of classes. We have a fraud and financial cl- a crime class that we teach. Once again, it's how to conduct interviews, how to ask questions properly, evaluate behavior, uh, how to extract the truth when you know there's elements of fraud. There's training classes. There's online classes. We have uh, uh, virtual classes that we do. Um, I teach webinars on a very regular basis over a variety of different topics that are an hour or two hours in length. And it's rather, it's, it's endless. But it's all about the art of interview. And I think in, you know, in that interviewing cycle, from the time you onboard an employee to the time we do an exit interview with an employee, and I'm a big advocate of you should always do an exit interview. Let's find out why they're leaving. All right. We communicate on a daily basis. And communication skills are very important to any leader of any organization, particularly when it comes to having difficult conversations within the workplace, conversations that might involve you know, integrity issues and, and uh, issues related to fraud or embezzlement. And that's what we do is we teach how to have those conversations. And there's a variety of ways, you know, for us to make that possible. Great. And how can people get in contact with you if they would like to? Uh, the best way to get in contact me uh, with me is with uh, through my email, which is it's first initial last name. So it's cnorris, C-N-O-R-R-I-S at W hyphen Z or W dash Z dot com. Our website is, um, you know, w-c.com as well. Look at our website. You can find me on LinkedIn um, at Chris Norris, uh, comma CFI. As a CFI, I'm a certified forensic interviewer. All of us at our um, organization that train on interviewing, we're CFIs. 
Um, and we have trainers in the UK and in Holland and in Costa Rica and uh, throughout the States. And the best way to get me is at, at the email cnorris at w-z.com. Well, thank you very much, Chris. It's been fascinating. And I also want to briefly thank uh, Eamon O'Sullivan, who put us in touch, my wife's accountant, who uh, had the Irish connection here, and we got in touch that way. So thanks, Eamon, if you're listening. All right, that's the end of the uh, Gross Profit Podcast for another episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, If you have any questions, you want to make comments, you can reach out to me at uh, james.kennedy at germanexpress.com. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing and leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcasts.